The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us. Good morning, guys. You guys ready to talk about being vegetarians and demon meat for Jesus? I take that as a yes. I'm ready. Hey, my name is Chad Kinser. I, uh, I serve as one of our pastors and uh, teaching pastor here downtown. It's a privilege to open God's Word with you. If you've got a Bible, open to this passage that Elizabeth just read, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's where we'll be today. And um, there's a lot of cultural work to do in this passage. Nothing like preaching on demon meat, you know, on a Sunday when we have so many families that are guests here with us. Uh, if you're a guest here with us as a, a member of a family that had a baby dedicated, we're so glad that you're here. It'll be, it'll be fun to open God's Word. This, this is a lot to form us today, and we'll get to that. So I want to jump right in. If you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you. And then as we pray today, I also want to just make mention that we'll open our service as we did last hour by praying for those, uh, those in Turkey and in Syria that are going through all the, the wreckage of those earthquakes. So let's pray for them. And uh, trust God will meet them as you'll meet us. Amen. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. There's no other name that we come to you in. There's no other way we come to you other than Jesus. And so Jesus, thank you that your name, your work, your resurrection, your offer of salvation through faith allows our prayer to be heard today. And so we first want to pray for those that are suffering through awful disaster across the globe. God, would you be with those in Turkey and in Syria and comfort those who are suffering the loss of a, of a loved one, a family member, a child. Ask that you'd protect the vulnerable, God. And God, I, somehow I ask that you would you would keep many who are suffering even winter conditions that are making this all the more complicated. Thank you that you're not unaware. Thank you that you know exactly what's happening. Thank you that you know exactly what they're going through. And I take comfort, I take great comfort in the scriptures 
when your people cry out to you, Exodus 2 says, you hear and you know. And so we trust, God, that you hear this prayer today and you know exactly what they need and that you're, you're moved to help. And events like this cause all of us to look forward to the great day when you'll return and there will be no more earthquakes. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your son Jesus quickly. We ask also that you would attend, attend us this hour as we open this text, that you would give us everything we need for life, godliness, and that you would call us to attention as we open your word. Would you hold our attention and would you meet us as God's people? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And we said, amen, amen. <clears throat> well, there's a way that we can often listen to a sermon or open the Bible in a setting like this, and it's a way that's over-individualized. And what I mean is, oftentimes you will attend to something like this, I do it too, and you'll think to yourself, how does this apply to me? And you'll think particularly about your life and your setting and the, the way that you're navigating in the world, and that's all good and true, and this will apply to everyone individually in the room, all scripture does. But this passage, Paul is specifically direct, uh, addressing the church together in ways that they're supposed to operate as a church together with Jesus. Emphasis on together, right? And so I want you to listen to this passage and listen to the sermon, engage it that way today. I'll open with a, one of my favorite quotes from the Dutch uh, theologian, Abraham Kuyper. He says, there's not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which... Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. It's one of my favorite quotes on the supremacy and the authority of Jesus. And a quote like that likely hits you differently in the room, however you're coming in. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you wouldn't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. It's a privilege to open God's word with you. But you probably hear a quote like that maybe as a bit laughable uh, or, or as a bit confusing. Like, who is who is Jesus to say mine over anything in my life? I've never seen him before. Why would he be able to say that? It may be a bit confusing to you. If you're here today, maybe you're a Christian, but you're a Christian going through a season of suffering. Maybe even the Christians in Syria or in Turkey would feel this way to go, if you can say mine over all things, would you please do that right now over my situation and take away, take away the pain? Take away the, why, why God, if you have this kind of power, have you allowed suffering to be as it is? But generally speaking, for most Christians, when we hear a statement like this, what, why I love it and why I think most of us would receive it is it helps us to see Jesus as he really is. This is not a quote. This is not something that Kuyper threw out there to, this is who I hope Jesus to be, or this is the kind of power and authority I hope that he has, or I'm make-believing that he has. No, this is what he actually has, and this is Kuyper telling us, inviting us in on a creative way of saying, this is who he really is. There's not a single square inch over which Jesus does not say mine. And the reason I want to cue up the sermon with this quote today is because a quote like this is well and good. It's well and good for something for us to think about. We all love a quote like this. This might even be a quote that you would snapshot on the screen and go, I'm going to have that crocheted and put on my wall or something in my house, right? You love this quote at a sentimental level. You love this quote so long as it's abstracted from you and you can just think ethereally about the power and authority of Jesus but the way that you feel about the authority and the control of Jesus is entirely different when Jesus wants to actually say mine over an area of your life. When this quote isn't just something to be said out there, but it's something that touches you in here. This quote hits different when Jesus starts to touch your preferences, 
This quote hits different when he starts to touch your social life, how you spend your weekends, how you spend free time with your friends. What happens when the every square inch over which Jesus declares mine reaches into every square inch of those areas where you might not guess he would speak, but all of a sudden he's speaking. Questions like this are what's in front of us in the text of where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. We're now at chapters eight to 10, which is its own self, one singular thought. We're gonna be here for three to four weeks, but it's dealing in eight to 10, dealing with the issue of the Christian's allegiance to Jesus on a few different levels. How do we understand our allegiance to Jesus, our following of Jesus on a few different levels? Number one, how do we have allegiance to Jesus and participate in a world that largely doesn't value what we value? You think about what Jesus said uh, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I want my disciples to be in the world, but not of the world to participate in the world, but in a world that largely doesn't value the things that you value as a follower of Jesus in the world, not swallowed by the world, just like it. And on the second level, allegiance to Jesus, and how should we understand our personal rights, things that we see as our own personal freedoms, especially in areas where the Bible doesn't have a clear command? How do we understand areas of conscience and conviction to Jesus? On a third level, how do we understand allegiance to Jesus and the responsibility that you and I have to other people, particularly other Christians, and how we use our personal rights and freedoms? That's a bunch of stuff I get there, but that's sort of the umbrella of what's happening in chapters 8 to 10. And the large and looming question of this whole section becomes, as a Christian, is there something greater than your personal rights and freedoms? And I know that we're a people who are like, we love our personal rights and freedoms. It's my right. You don't have the right to tell me how I should use my rights, right? I recognize the room I'm saying that in. I'm recognizing the context of America, middle America, largely a red voting bloc that loves rights and freedoms. But is there something greater than your rights and your freedoms that ought to guide, even restrict, the way that you steward your freedoms for the good of others? Those are some of the questions that this text is going to address. What do we do when Jesus wants to declare mine over your personal rights? What do we do? Like that, that's where this text begins to jump in. So we'll take this text, chapter eight, in three different parts today. I'll give it to you and then we'll jump into work. The first is Christians in culture, then and now. This issue of love and knowledge that Paul brings up. And then thirdly, what about us? What about us? Christians in culture, love and knowledge, and then us at the end. Track with me a lot of work today, but there's a real sense of application for us in the end. So in verse one, invites us to the question at hand. Now concerning food offered to idols, or food sacrificed to idols. He says, we know, quoting them, all of us possess knowledge. Okay, so what's happening is once again in this letter, we're given a heads up that Paul has had previous correspondence with the church in Corinth, by letter, and they've given him a list of questions, a list of things they're confused about and how to follow Jesus. And this book is Paul taking up those questions one by one, sort of an open letter Q&A. And now we've jumped to a new topic, the signal there, beginning of verse one, now concerning this question, which was food sacrifice to idols. And I recognize that this is probably not anywhere on your top 100 dilemmas that you'll ever face in your life, right? I, maybe today, Super Bowl Sunday and an offering of food sacrificed to the idol of the chiefs and the eagles, right? 
But this actually was a massive issue for the Corinthian Christians in the cultural norms of their city. And so it's fair to point out, maybe this isn't your issue, but there are, this is a massive issue for Christians still all over the world, in Asia and in Africa. We actually had someone reach out to us, one of our friends in India, who's facing this literal thing. What do I do with food sacrificed to a pagan god and I'm invited to a friend's house to have this meal with them in that setting? Can I eat this meal? Should I accept the invitation? And so Corinth was like any other Roman city of its day. It was an intensely spiritual city, but it was a city given over to pagan spirituality. And so there were temples and shrines to various gods everywhere. Pagan customs were at the very center of cultural and social life in Corinth. And so Christians in Corinth were constantly being confronted with their former way of life. They couldn't get away from the pagan gods because they were in front of them. They would have been on billboards. Their uh, establishments would have been all around. You couldn't go down your neighborhood street without having some reference to these pagan gods. They were always being confronted with it. And this is especially true in the meals that they ate with food. Pagan temples were the restaurants of the day. Pagan temples were the pubs of the day. Pagan temples were the venues of social life in their moment. So if you wanted to go out to eat, you went to a pagan temple. If you wanted to have a birthday dinner out on the town, you went to the temple of a pagan god. If you wanted to take, out your, take, your, take, take your wife out on a date, you had to go to a pagan temple. If you wanted to meet up with your coworkers, have a rehearsal dinner for a wedding, a reception for a wedding, you're starting to get the point. If you wanted to do any of these things and have a social life in the city, then you had to go do these things at a pagan temple. This is the concern of chapter 8. And then more than that, if you became a Christian, you're like, well, I don't want to go to those places anymore. It wasn't as though you could escape this. Most of the meat that was sold in the market was first butchered by pagan priests in pagan temples, prepared, and then they were the waiters at those pagan temples to those people there. What was left over would then be sold at the market for you and I to buy as groceries or for them to buy his groceries, as it were. And so this was another issue. Should you buy this meat if you don't know the origin of it? If you don't know where it came from, that's the issue we'll take up in chapter 10. What if your friend who's not a Christian invites you over to their house? You know that they worship these pagan gods, and likely the meal they've prepared was offered in worship to these pagan gods, and then they're going to serve it to you. Should, can you eat this meal? Should you accept the invitation to that dinner? That's also taken up in chapter 10. But the pervasive nature of the pagan culture made it difficult, as you can tell, to be a Christian. Made it really hard to follow Jesus. It created lots of heated debates in the church. How should we handle all of this? Everyone around us loves something other than Jesus, and it makes it hard for us to love Jesus where we are. And the Corinthians were polarized over these issues over and over again. And this is really dramatic for a church that already loved to argue. They already loved to divide. Remember back in chapter one, they were divided over which preacher they liked the best. So now much more on an issue of pagan worship, they're all the more divided. They didn't need any help to argue. They loved to do that. So there were two sides to this whole debate. Track with me on this. There were two sides to this whole debate. There were some who said, hey guys, this is no big deal. This is no, those gods aren't real. We've come, to God, we've come to the one true God. We know that this, this isn't real. Those are just little shrines. Like someone made that out of gold with their own hands. They melted their own jewelry, made it. That's not a God, right? This is not a big deal. We know this. And that's was, this is what they meant when they said we all possess knowledge as if to say, hey, we all know that this is no big deal. So Paul actually takes up the no big deal side of the argument in verse 4. As to the eating of food offered to idols, 
we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so these people who on this side of the argument would actually say to the people on the other side of the argument, hey, one of the ways that you can feel better about going to these restaurants is by actually going to the restaurant and overcoming your fears of pagan worship because you know that that's not, you're not worshiping that God. That God doesn't even exist. So you can be there as a Christian and they can play their little song and dance, but you're not participating. You're just having a good steak. You're just sort of having a good meal. And this is one way they would say to the other crowd to get over it. But even if they didn't go with them, they would say, hey, regardless of whether or not you want to go with me, regardless of how you want to handle this, going to those places is not a problem for me. Going to those places is not a temptation for me. And so I'm not going to allow your weakness to interrupt my personal freedom or my personal right to go have a good time and a good meal. You can come if you want. If you don't, I'm still going to go. Now, on the other side of this argument, or what this passage is going to call the weak. And the weak doesn't mean that they were literally lesser. It means, it means that they were new converts. They were young in the faith. They, they had a weak conscience not formed to strength in Christian conviction. They were new. They still had lots of questions. And the new Christians felt like going to these pagan temples to have a meal was actually a huge deal. And it was a complete compromise, even to the point they would have called it a betrayal of, of allegiance to Jesus. And Paul takes up their side of the argument in verse 7. He says, however, you guys claim to have knowledge, but not all of us possess this knowledge in the way that you claim to have it. He says, some, through their former association with these idols, when they eat the food, they do so as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, not yet entirely formed around this knowledge, is then defiled. Is then defiled. So on the other side, these people would have said, hey, I know that you think you can go to those places and it's no big deal, but you have no idea what I used to do in those temples. I gave myself to really vile things. I did things that I'm not, I'm not even sure I want to say out loud. And I can't just walk across the threshold of that establishment anymore. I, I didn't just go in there to eat food. It was a whole different thing altogether in the worship of demons. And so for some of them, this would have been a temptation if they were to do so, to go back to an old way of life. For others, this would have been incredibly triggering, anxiety-inducing. This would have been horrifically confusing to them. And this group would have been made to battle bitterness in the Christian community because they had to decide, should I just put down what I feel like is my compromised conscience just to go out with my friends, or do I have to follow Jesus and stay alone and not hang out with my Christian friends? It'd be one thing if they weren't Christian, but now, like, I can't participate in a simple meal on the town with my Christian friends? And so I, I get it, right? We're not, we're not dealing with this particular dilemma, but doesn't the social dynamic really speak into stuff that we do deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? And so before we get to Paul's instruction, it's worth pointing out that historically, when it comes to issues of conscience and when it comes to issues of culture, Christians have fallen into two different ditches. I don't think these are the two ditches the people in Corinth were in, but over the history of the church, this is predominantly how we've handled issues like theirs. On one ditch is a group we'll call the legalists, right? Legalism. And some of you, as I say that, I can hear some chuckles like you're breaking out in hives because you had a background in legalism, right? This is a group that likes to make strict rules about religious practice, mostly about what not to do. And so 
Legalists like to have a religious code and it's typically about issues of alcohol or gambling or movies or music or politics. And so where the Bible is not particularly clear on any of those issues, they rush in and go, hey, well, I'm clear on those issues and I've got, a, I've got something to say. If the Bible lacks clarity, I've got a lot of clarity and here's how we're gonna do it. Here's how it's gonna go down. And they give a new law. And the scary thing about legalism is while it looks like righteousness, it looks like devotion, it looks like rigor toward God, what's dangerous about it is it actually instead becomes a standard of righteousness by which certain people judge other people and they're made to feel far from God or close to God based on how good you are at keeping all the rules. It's simply based on the rules. Never mind the condition of a person's heart. Maybe you're bad at keeping all the rules but you have a heart that's tender to Jesus and constantly repentant and wanting to grow, never mind that. They don't keep the rules. They're far from God. Or you could be a person on the other side that's good at keeping all the rules, but your heart's cold and dead with any love to God. But you can keep the rules, so you must be good. Never mind the fact that Jesus, according to Scripture, is our true righteousness, not your ability to keep any rules. That's not righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness, and the only way we get close to God is through Jesus. It's built on him, not rules, but the legalist wants to make it about the rules. That's one ditch. The other ditch is called license. And this is a group that often just reacts against the rule makers in the other camp. You fall in another ditch where you throw all caution to the wind all in the name of freedom. Hey, listen, Christ died for my sins. He died for my past sins. He's died for my present sins. He's died for all the future sins I'll commit. So it doesn't really matter how much I, how I live. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. My righteousness is with God. And Jesus understands my struggles. The irony of a licensed person with struggles is it's never really a struggle. You just use the word struggle because that's a socially acceptable word with Christians. You're just doing what you want to do, but you call it a struggle because you know you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyways because you're forgiven and I have license. And this group never actually ends up, the reason it's a ditch is because this group never really ends up growing as a Christian and very often they become indistinguishable from the world. They just call themselves a Christian, yet their life looks nothing like it. And as I mentioned, this group is often just a reaction against the rules and the burden of the former. And the problem with both groups, lean in on this, the problem with both of these groups is they bypass Jesus. Both of the groups are at fault, yet neither of the groups see themselves at fault. Both of the groups like to have Jesus as their mascot, but none of them are actually with Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. Legalists, they bypass Jesus for a righteousness of their own making. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how well I can color between the lines and live between the lines and stay between the lines. They have a righteousness of their own making, yet they're never truly happy because they're always being judged by their rules and they're always judging others by the rules. And they bypass the righteousness of Jesus. The licensed people, they also bypass the lordship of Jesus. They disregard the things that Jesus actually says that we should do or not do, and they excuse their loose living by just saying, well, I'm forgiven. But they're bypassing the holiness of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting about both these groups. Both groups are always present in the church. Both groups. And rarely do you see yourself as in one of these groups. Maybe today you're self-aware enough that you can see yourself. But... In this room today, some of you are legalists. 
And in this room today, some of you are licensed people. Both groups are always present in the church. The idea is that we're growing away from them and toward Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. Both groups, both groups hurt the witness of the church. The legalist group hurts the witness of the church because they're only known for what they're against and the people they're against and all the things they're against and we're the best people and so we're against stuff. They hurt the witness of the church by being judgmental and not offering grace. The licensed people hurt the witness of the church because they have no witness. They're just like the world. They have nothing to witness to. Both groups judge each other, don't they? Both groups judge each other But both groups see themselves as more spiritual than the other. Both groups. Now, to combat both sides of this, then and now, what you and I need to hear is the instruction that Paul gives on this issue of knowledge and love. Knowledge and love. Track with me. Both groups think they know something, don't they? Both groups think they know something. Both groups feel that they're right about whatever issue it is. And both groups feel they have the right, the personal freedom, to live out their views in whatever way that they want to. And if you don't like it, well, you've got to deal with it. And this is especially true back in Corinth for the group that didn't see any problem eating this meat at the temples. And the problem that Paul points out to them, and this is a problem that reads your mail and mine, is you claim to know something. Think about the things that you claim to know. You claim to know something, but very often what Paul's going to accuse them of and us is that your knowledge actually is doing nothing but dividing you from people. You claim to know stuff, but in your knowledge, you just now are aware of all the people you're against and all the people you don't want to be associated with, and you're making sure they know that I'm not associated with you. You're talking past other people, and you stop talking to people, all in the name of you knowing something. So Paul brings us up again in verse 1. He says, quoting them, we all possess knowledge, but Paul says, here's the problem. Your knowledge is puffing you up. Whatever knowledge you claim to know isn't actually knowledge that helps. It's knowledge that hurts. It's knowledge that puffs you up. You claim to know stuff, so you have a fat ego and a fat head. But love, he says, builds up. You've bypassed love. You've bypassed love. You know something, but you think that excuses you from actually being loving because you have to win arguments now. The greater problem in Corinth, and this is going to read us in a second, so keep tracking with the work. The greater problem in Corinth wasn't what was happening in the idol temples. That's a problem. We'll talk about that. But the first and greatest sin is that they insisted on being right and winning the argument. They so insisted on being right, even if that meant they had to lose relationships. That's the bigger sin. And hasn't that happened in our moment? Mostly around masks and politics. I have to be right. So much so that if you don't want to be with me anymore, you're prerogative. This isn't about masks and politics, but I want to, this hits us. This hits us. They insisted on being right, even to the loss of relationships. Even worse, both groups, again, thought of themselves as more spiritual than the other. So Paul picks that up in verse 2. I love what he does here in 2. He gets real snarky. If anyone imagines that he knows something, (laughs) if anyone like, hey, I know some stuff, Paul's like, you don't know anything. (laughs) If anyone imagines, if anyone thinks I've got something to say, you can pretty well know they have nothing to say. If anyone thinks they know something, their knowledge isn't tempered by character, it's not tempered by self-awareness, and it's not tempered by wisdom as to how to apply that knowledge. They just think i got to spout off all that I know, because after all, I know stuff. 
And so he goes on. They don't know as they ought to know. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God. Now you would assume based on what he just said, if anyone thinks they know something, they don't really. But if you love God, you would assume he'd finish the statement. Well, then they really know something. But he doesn't say that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The one who loves God is known by God. Lean in with me. This is beautiful. Love for God is not shown by what you know. Spiritual growth is not how much you know about God, and it's not how much you know about Jesus. Love for God is not about what you know. Love for God is shown in you being formed by what you claim to know. Spiritual growth, you say, I don't know a lot about Jesus. That's fine. Are you obedient to the little that you know? Because I know people who know a lot about Jesus and they're obedient to none of it. Love is not about what you know, but about what you're being formed. And specifically, are you being formed and are you being humbled in the knowledge that God knows you, known by God? Here's what he means. Who am I? Who are you? Think about all the ugly underneath the hood. You're pretty on the outside, but you got ugly down there. So do I. Who are you? Who am I that God would take notice of us? Who are you? Who am I that God would not just take notice of me, but take interest in me? Who are you that God would not just notice you and take interest in you, but he would send his son for you? Not just notice you, take interest and send his son, but then he would call you by name, and then he would set his love on you, and then he would call you his own and accept you into his family. Who are you? Who am I to be known by God? That's true knowledge. Because when you have self-awareness that I shouldn't be known by God, but despite who I am, I'm still known by God, well, in that point, it starts to lead you out toward love of other people and surrender the need to be right. If God has been that way to you, if God has been that way to me, if God didn't insist on being right when he could have against me, but he laid down his rights at the cross and he suffered in my place, if God's been that way to me, then surely I can be that way. If God has been this way to me, if God has taken notice of my troubles, then surely I can take notice of the cares and the troubles of my brothers and sisters, even when I might disagree with them. I don't have to be right. I'm known by God. In verse six, Paul quotes from them again, and it's one of the greatest, what's crazy is he's gonna quote from them one of the greatest confessions in the New Testament we have on the high Christology, that Jesus is God. He says, you have wonderful theology. In verse six, yet for there is one God, the Father, for whom all things, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He said, that's beautiful theology, but your theology is only, is only placing you over other people seeing yourself as better than them and you're dividing from other Christians. Who cares if you have a beautiful confession of faith if it divides you from other people over trivial matters? It's one of the beautiful, most beautiful confessions we have in the New Testament, but isn't that true? That's how we do it. So look back to verse eight. We'll get to resolution and we'll get to application. I know I'm asking you to do a lot of work today, but this passage is just stuck in their world and we're translating it to ours. So verse eight, he says, he speaks to both groups. Food doesn't commend you to God. So what he means is, you're no worse off if you don't eat. If you don't go to these temples, that's fine. But you're no better off if you do. So neither group should think of themselves as better than the other. But now he speaks to the group who says it's no big deal because they've got a warning. Verse 9. He says, I want you guys to take care 
that this right of yours, this personal right, this personal freedom, I want you to take care that you don't use your rights in a way that would become a stumbling block to the weak. Yeah, it's your prerogative, but your prerogative is no longer your own in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's now ruled by love. And so what he means is in verse 10, for if anyone, he's talking about the weaker people, if anyone sees you who think you have knowledge about the temple, that it's no big deal. But if they who think it's a big deal see you in the temple, he says, won't that person be encouraged since his conscience is weak to then join you and eat food sacrificed to idols? And then, so by your knowledge, and, and so by your knowledge this weak person is actually destroyed. They've been made to compromise their faith just to join you over a meal when that was really difficult for them, and you've destroyed their faith. A brother for whom Christ died. This is no small thing. And then in verse 12, and you're sinning not just against your brother by forcing them to do something they're uncomfortable with, but now you're sinning against Christ for whom he shed his blood for them too. And so Paul gives us personal testimony in verse 13. Here's how he handles the issue. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. <laughs> That's where he goes with it. I don't meat's, meat's my personal right. I like a good medium rare steak. I like it. But if it makes my brother stumble, then I'll never eat meat. It's just not worth it. My brother's worth it, not the meat. My brother's worth it. And so he uses some serious language here. He's trying to see that, he's trying to get us to see that our personal freedoms things that we think are no big deal, he's raising the stake and he says, I want you to consider how you live your life and the impact it has on others because it might just be the edification of someone's faith or the destruction of someone's faith. And what he's trying to get us to see on another level is that the faithfulness to Jesus, the faithfulness to Jesus that every one of us have is more connected to the person sitting next to you than you ever thought. Your sin is not just your sin. Your life is not just your life. It has ripple effects. It has ripple effects. You have more of a responsibility. I have more of a responsibility than you ever realized to watch after and to protect the faith of the person sitting next to you. There's a really helpful scholar on this. Vaughn Roberts said it this way. Now, Paul isn't saying that we should never do anything that might hurt the feelings of another person. And he's also not saying that we should never offend someone else's sensibilities. The issue is not whether our behavior might upset someone, but whether it could lead other believers to sin against their conscience. So let me pull this together. Let me pull this together. You've done a lot of work with me. Let me stick it in our moment. So for the Corinthians, they were making decisions between Christianity and paganism and mixing the two. That's not your problem. That's not my problem. Let me tell you what is our problem. We're making decisions between following Jesus and indifference and mixing the two. We're, our problems are following G, making decisions between following Jesus and having my own way. Like I'm cool with Jesus so long as he's cool with my way. I'm cool with Jesus so long as he agrees with what I agree with in the world politically and socially and in my family. But as soon as he might disagree with me, then I'm no longer cool with Jesus. And we're trying to mix the two, my way and Jesus, or indifference in Jesus. And our problem is actually more terrifying than theirs. <laughs> because our problem is often unseen. Idolatry was everywhere for them, but our idolatry is under the hood. Your love for power, my love for power, comfort, approval, control, 
The line between Jesus and indifference has become so normal to us that many of us don't even see it anymore. And this is why he uses language, beware lest your faith actually destroy that of someone else's. And so most of us live, here's the whole decision, indifference in Jesus. We live with this mentality, how can I live in such a way that I get all of the world that I want to get, that I can participate in the world just like everyone else participates in the world and still get away with being a Christian? Like, how can I have all that I want to have? How can I get my cake and eat it too and still get a pass on being a Christian? How much can I get away with and still get a pass? How much can I participate in the things of the world and still get a pass? And so just to make this practical on a couple of levels, there are so many levels, but I'll give you just two and maybe it helps you do your own work. Every couple of years, we have what I call the cowboy dilemma at Frontline. And it's not Dallas or Oklahoma State cowboys. It's cowboys on Meridian, country line dancing and drinking. We have what I call the cowboy dilemma or, or the watch party dilemma. I can call it that way. Should we or should we not go out dancing and drinking on a Friday night? Should we or should we not have the Game of Thrones watch party in the living room? And the issue, the issue isn't so much about dancing and drinking, and I know I'm going to surprise some people when I say that. It's not so much the issue, any more than the issue is meat in Corinth. The issue is, here's leaning on the issue, do you know the stories and do you know the backgrounds of the people in your community and whether or not going to a place like that might be harmful for their life in Christ? Do you know that? Are you making anyone in your community feel, be made to feel pressure between deciding faithfulness to Jesus and being with my friends? That I might have to come, like you don't know what some of those places might have meant to those people in, before they came to Christ. That to even go back to some of those places or participate in the same activities could be a complete compromise of everything that they've come to know is pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Are you, maybe to frame it up a different way, are you thinking about faith at all when you plan your Friday night or your Saturday night? Are you thinking maybe more importantly about the faith of someone else when you invite them to participate with you in a thing? Does faith even come across your mind? Maybe to, <laughs> I know I've borrowed a lot of your time. Maybe I can give you one more question to pierce this. <clears throat> does your community operate in any kind of way? Does your community operate in any kind of way or the way that you host people or gather people, does it operate in any kind of way where if a new Christian would come in, they would be made to feel, this isn't any different than the way I used to hang out with my non-Christian friends. But you guys all do it and you just sort of stamp Jesus on the top of it. I actually gave up a lot to come into this community. It seems like you guys haven't given up anything. You're just doing what you want to do. You call it Christian, and you invite me in. Is there anything that you, the way you operate that would make a new Christian to feel, is this actually any different? Now, I know that's heavy. Let me sort of lift us for a second. This text isn't here to make your weekends boring. This text isn't here to make your living rooms a sad place to like have to watch cartoons or something. 
Paul did not write 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to say, you know what I want to do? I want to make the Corinthians Christians really lame in their city. That's not why he wrote this. In fact, he wrote it for exactly the opposite reason. This text is here. Here's the big finish today. This text is here because the integrity of your faith is worth fighting for. This text is here because the integrity of the faith of the person sitting next to you is worth fighting for. Jesus shed his blood to secure the integrity of your faith, and Jesus shed his blood to secure the integrity of the person sitting next to you. And Jesus has given the two of you together. He's given the rest of your community together, not so just that you could do whatever you want and force people to participate in things they might be uncomfortable with because that's just a better time. He's given the two of you together that you would help one another get to the great day. That's why he's given you together. It's not about, well, if you can't handle what I like to handle, then I'm still going to do it. And you, No, it's like, hey, what is it for you to give up anything? if it means you can have your brother and have Christ and have Christ and your brother together. What deal is that? Kuiper said, there's not a single square inch in the whole domain over the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. He says that to you. He says that to the person sitting next to you and the person in your car on Friday nights and the person across the living room at that watch party. Do you care about that? A few questions and a prayer and on your way. What area of your life is Jesus saying mine over and you're resistant to let him have it? What area of your life is Jesus saying mine over but you're like, I don't want you to say that there. The second question is, what does this mean for your community? I think our community groups ought to have some conversations. What does this mean? And the third question is this. What freedoms or rights should you reconsider? What freedoms or rights should you reconsider out of love and for the sake of the faith of those around you? What, what freedom should you reconsider that someone else might be built up even if you feel like it's no big deal? Let's pray together. Our Father, I know that we're traveling upstream today. <laughs> and you've given us a lot to unpack in this one chapter. But God, I ask that you would help us to allow it to press on us. God, I'm asking for every person in here, Holy Spirit, whatever you would want to do, I pray that you'd be able to do it. And I pray that you'd protect us from losing it before we get to the car. And God, I pray for anyone in here who is a new Christian or, God, I thank you for all the people that you've saved out of wild backgrounds in our church. God, and I ask that you'd protect them if in any way they've been made to feel compromised for the sake of being a part of a new community. Would you help us have a greater concern, not of rights or freedom, but of love? And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.